Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. It's easy to think of doubt as a sign of weak faith, but it's not. God isn't afraid of our doubts, so we don't have to be either. In our new series, Doubting God, we're creating a space for questions we've been afraid to ask. Together, let's discover how doubt can actually build our faith. Enjoy the message. I want to ask you this question. Have you ever experienced doubts in your life, specifically when it comes to the faith that you're walking with Christ? Have you ever experienced doubts? And was there a time where you maybe you had a long-held belief and your life began to just seem like it was shaking, the foundations were shaking? Well, I had a long-held belief as a kid uh, about uh, a certain person that would come to the house and give me money every time I'd lose teeth. Oh yeah, I'm talking about the tooth fairy, all right? And so if you have some young ones in here and you're like protecting the integrity of the tooth fairy, you've been warned, all right? So, but I remember uh, I was told uh, in the 1980s that if you lost your teeth, you get a quarter per tooth. I think inflation has kicked in. It's at least over a dollar, all right? If it's under a dollar, you're shortchanging the kids, all right? So, but I remember being in kindergarten, everybody was losing their teeth or their teeth were wiggly and I wasn't losing a single one. In fact, I was beginning to take this into my own hands. I realized that teeth were money, and so I began to do you know, what they did in the cartoons. I would tie up a you know, fishing line around my teeth and try to connect it to a doorknob to see if it would you know, pull the teeth out of my mouth. Didn't work, all right? Uh, I, I would stand in front of the mirror and begin to wiggle my teeth to see if that maybe would make the teeth a little bit loose. My teeth didn't go anywhere, all right? I didn't lose my teeth until almost second grade, but I lost my first tooth not in a natural way. I remember I was playing WrestleMania with my brother, and we were wrestling uh, in the living room, and my brother jumped off the top rope. Now, the top rope in the living room is jumping off the couch, all right? And so he's jumping off the top rope. He elbows me in the face, knocks me straight in the mouth, and out goes my front tooth. He was horrified. I was elated. Finally, I lost a tooth. And so, of course, I put that tooth in a little baggie. I put it underneath because it was a little bloody, all right? I put it underneath the pillow, and I could not wait for the tooth fairy to come. And so I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning. I opened up my pillow to see the quarter in exchange for the tooth, and guess what? The tooth fairy didn't come. Now, at first I thought, well, maybe this was because I was bad or something. Maybe it was like Santa Claus, he get cold or something like that. No, 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 it wasn't like that at all. So I went up to my mom and was like, Mom, I've lost my tooth in WrestleMania and the tooth fairy didn't come. And my mom's face kind of looked kind of sheepish, like, oh. and then I knew something. Oh, yes. When I saw my mom's face, I realized this was all a farce. I realized, you're the tooth fairy, aren't you? You forgot. She's like, well, uh, yeah. And then I realized, oh my goodness, I had an existential crisis. I realized, okay, if the tooth fairy is my mom who forgot to put the quarter underneath the pillow, then I asked my mom straight up, is Jesus real? Woo, things got serious quick, right? And my mom's like, oh, no, 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 no. She looked panicked. Uh, the tooth fairy, yes, me, Jesus, he's real. Now, as a kid, all he needs sometimes is some black and white, you know, truth assurance. I'm like, okay, sweet. Went to church, didn't question it. I, grew, I, went, to, I went to my version of City Kids. It was awesome. I learned about Jesus, didn't question it. I grew in Jesus. It was an important part of my life. But then high school came. 
high school came, I remember I was uh, delivering newspapers uh, door to door one morning, six o'clock in the morning, delivering the Des Moines Register. And I can remember exactly where I was at. I was, uh, I was on uh, 9th Street on a cul-de-sac on the end of the road, Brown House. It was actually a, the high school English teacher. And as I was delivering the newspaper, a crazy thought entered my mind. What if everything I believed about God isn't real? What if? And again, I went, kind of went back to it. I was like, yeah, but, but it is real. And I just kind of buried it and I grew my faith a little bit more. Then I entered into college. And as I entered into college, again, I didn't go to Bible college at first. I went to secular college. I thought I was going to be a weatherman. And as I was sitting in Psychology 101, oh yeah, you want to shake your faith, go to philosophy or psychology at a secular college, your faith will be shaken. I had a team teachers, team professors, these these, uh, two professors every single day made fun of people who claimed to be Christians. And again, it made me just like kind of mad, you know, when you hear people that are just ripping you about, about your faith. I'm like, well, who are you? I remember even writing a paper from a Christian perspective. They hated it so bad, they gave me an F, and then they wanted me to be booted from the class because they said the paper was bigoted. I remember I, pe- I appealed to the dean, and the dean's like, this is supposed to be a place where you have intellectual freedom. And, and again, I, I was not kicked out, but you can see they were so adamantly opposed to Christians. And I want you to know this. If you're going into college or you have students that are going into college, this was 20 years ago, I can't imagine how it is now. That means you need to know what you know and know how to defend it. And I went into college knowing a bunch of stuff but not knowing how to defend it, not knowing exactly why I believe those things. And I remember finally after going through that battle uh, in Psychology 101, I realized in that moment, wait a minute, I had this question with the tooth fairy. I had this question in high school and I buried it. What if all these things I've been defending blindly aren't true? And it scared me. For the first time, it scared me. And it was in this moment I realized I could drift away from what I always believed or I can dig down deep and know why I believed what I believed. And I found a book, at this, it was at my, at my house, ironically, I think my brother had bought it, I think he was going through some of the same questions, and it was a book called The Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. I love that book, all right? There's some other books called The, you know, the Case for Christ, there's other apologetic books. I'm sure uh, Joshua Gilmore will, uh, will uh, encourage us uh, to pick up uh, after class today. But the evidence that man's a verdict was a pivotal book because the, the premise of this book is that if God is real, uh, then he's going to literally litter the universe, litter society, litter the earth with his evidences. And it's true. If you were to go to college today, they will tell you that the burden of proof is against you to believe in God. But when you begin to dig deep into the things of God, dig deep into the evidences of the reality of God, you realize the burden of proof is actually against those that say Christ or that God doesn't exist. It was a beautiful thing to understand when I was done digging deep into some of these questions that I had that when I left, I didn't leave with a a shaky faith or something that, okay, maybe God is wrong. No, no, I realized that the Bible is the most trustworthy document we have on the planet. I I believe that that, that God has has shown his miracles, that there are different things in archaeology that have no explanation other than the Bible said it first and then we found it later. There are many things that are just all over this earth that the Bible describes very clearly. In fact, when you dig deep, oh man, it should increase your faith. But listen, here's the deal. 
A lot of us have had doubts, or a lot of us have buried doubts, or a lot of us have questions we can't answer. And when we are faced with doubts, and notice I say this, when you are faced with doubts or questions in your faith, you will either drift away from your faith or you'll dig deep and your faith will grow. So I return to the question, when have you experienced doubts in your faith? What do you do? Maybe it's been in a particularly hard season of life. You don't understand why God's allowing these certain things to happen in your life. Uh, Maybe you just had random thoughts. There's just no rhyme or reason. You woke up and you just had this thought and you don't have the answer to that thought. Or maybe it's just you don't feel God. You know, there's mornings where, where, where you just had this, maybe this morning you had an amazing moment in the presence of God, but tomorrow morning on Monday, he's just gonna seem so far away. So what will you do when you doubt, when you're faced with doubt, you're faced with the decision to either drift or to dig? And that's the idea, is when in doubt, you will drift or you dig. I want you to remember that. You're going to drift away from the truth, or you're going to dig down deep and try to find the answers to the questions that maybe you have. So oftentimes people think that if you're a Christian, when you, you don't have, there's no room to doubt or have questions. Maybe you grew up in an environment where uh, you were told to never question anything. You're like, hey, I got a question. Be quiet. Get in the line. Just believe it. Why? Because it's true. Okay, right? Maybe you've been in an environment like that. Today it's popular, especially through social media, where doubts become a virtue. And people have, I would say, an unhealthy obsession in the uncertainty. Listen, when your doubt doesn't, when you're presented with doubt, it doesn't mean you're going to have a, a life of an accumulated uh, moments of uncertainty where you don't believe in anything. No, rather, I believe that when we look at the pages of Scripture, when you have doubt, it's a beautiful opportunity for you to grow. To grow in Christ, to grow in your faith. So I, this series is going to be particularly important because we're going to address specific issues. We're going to go over today just the general idea of doubt, but we're going to take a look at next week specifically is what do we do and why do Christians drift? What's making them drift away uh, even in this culture? Uh, and the following week, we're going to talk about our insecurities. And, the fo- and we'll close off this series with what do we do when Christians hurt you. I, I, I see this as one of the number one reasons why people begin to drift is they take their eyes off Christ, who's perfect, and they put their eyes on imperfect people, and those imperfect people let them down, and then they begin to drift from the faith. So we're going to deal with those topics. So today we're going to be dealing with this. What do we do when we doubt? When in doubt, you'll drift or dig. But again, let's define doubt. Number one, what is doubt? What is doubt? Now, you might be surprised to hear that doubt is not uncommon when you read the pages of Scripture. In fact, it was a common occurrence uh, for some of the strongest believers throughout the Bible to have experienced seasons of doubt or to have questions. Moses, when he was called by God himself, doubted his calling. He said, I'm not an eloquent speaker. Uh, You have uh, Elijah, who was on a mountaintop experience slaying the prophets of Baal, and literally within 24 to 48 hours was in the valley doubting doubting life, doubting the very existence and goodness of God because of his circumstances. And then, of course, you have the apostles... Uh, before they were uh, missionaries ready to give their life for Christ, you got to realize they all denied Christ on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Doubt is in the lives of some of the most prolific people in the Bible. Now in the Bible, when we see doubt, it comes from a number of words, the most common words. It means this, it means to waver. It means to hesitate. It means to want to be in two places at once. Have you ever done that? Oh, I got ice cream yesterday. 
right? And they have all these different options. And I'm like, okay, I want cookies and cream. I want mocha. Um, I, I, I want that, that chocolate brownie one. And, you know, some of you, you're in doubt. So you want to be in, in, you know, three places at once. So you get the Mondo ice cream. I don't even know how you do it, right? But if you only have one choice, you're like, you're just sitting there and you're like, I don't know what to do. And what ends up happening is when you actually, does this happen to you? You actually get the ice cream. You're like, man, I wish I got a shake. Man, you're like eating ice cream. Like you're not even enjoying it because you're thinking of everything else you could be doing, every, everything else that you could be eating in that moment. Well, that's what it is sometimes when it comes to life. With decisions that we make or things that we believe is we, we wish that we can be in two simultaneous places and it's impossible. It logically doesn't make sense. That's what doubt is. Now, doubt could be, it's often translated in English as a negative word. In scripture, we actually see positive occurrences of it, and we see very negative occurrences. So let's take a look at our positive occurrence of doubt. The positive occurrence of doubt, uh, it would, I would say, would be those that examine. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. This is a very common communion verse. Uh, we take communion here about once a month here at Kenosha City Church, and I typically read this passage. It instructs us what communion's all about. So let me read this to you, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. So then whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way to let, to let him eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner. So communion is the picture of uh, Christ's sacrifice for us. The bread representing the body, the cup representing Christ's shed blood. And Jesus instituted this in the upper room uh, for the early church, including us as well today, uh, to commemorate the sacrifice of Christ. We're to do this until Jesus comes back. It is a powerful, beautiful, unifying moment where it reminds us why we get together as a church. We get together because we've been saved by grace through faith. Uh, we get together because Jesus Christ paid it all. When there was no way, he provided the way. Communion reminds us to examine ourselves, to see if there's any stubborn sin that's in our life. Communion reminds us that Jesus Christ is coming back, and therefore, because he's not back, we have a mission right now to accomplish. Communion doesn't save you. It's a memorial. It's a reminder. It's an act of obedience. But the Corinthian church forgot this. The Corinthian church. Uh, the Corinthian church, they, they were uh, a church that was known by everybody. They were, they were uh, filled with what seemed like Holy Spirit power. Uh, they were filled with, with some of the greatest speakers. Uh, they were the who's who went to this church. But listen, here's the deal. They had all the glitz and the glamour, but their hearts were bankrupt. You can go through chapter by chapter and like, oh my goodness, this church did that? Yeah, and to top it off, when communion came around, oh yeah, they're like, hey, you know what? Party at communion today. What are you gonna do? We're drinking all of the juice, and the juice is wine, and we're gonna get drunk, and they got sloshed. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Showing up to Kenosha City Church, everybody just out, passed out drunk. You're like, what happened to this place? They need a rebuke. That's exactly why 1 Corinthians was written. It is a, it is a book of rebuke, and he's rebuking the church is saying, you think you're all this, but you're bankrupt. Stop it. You need to, here it is, examine yourself that you eat and drink the cup, the bread in the cup, in a worthy manner. 
You need to examine yourself. This word examine means you need to doubt yourself. We are in the natural inclination to believe that we are good and there's nothing bad inside of us. We need to doubt that this morning. We need to examine our hearts continually. We need to doubt the condition we are in so we can allow Christ to reveal who we really are and the sin that needs to be confessed before him right now. Too often people want to examine other things, uh, other people, at the expense of never examining themselves. And by the way, when that's the case, that's a recipe for great self-righteousness. They want to take what's going on in their lives and project it towards others to avoid examining themselves. Paul's like, stop that. Examine your own heart. Positive doubt is not doubting God. It's not becoming judgmental towards others. As John MacArthur states, it's actually coming face to face with yourself. Positive doubt is an examination of yourself that pushes you into deeper reliance and faith in Christ Jesus. Positive doubt moves the burden of proof from your own thoughts to the thoughts of God. Positive doubt looks at falsehood and it places it underneath the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, a few years ago, I remember uh, praying with my seven, at the time, seven-year-old son, and it was, it was a typical prayer, right? They're kind of cute, you know, prayers, you know, between the ages of, you know, when they can talk all the way up to somewhere, you know, seven, eight, nine. They're pretty cute because they're, they're really, you can like, you can mouth it with them. Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. God bless. And then here's a bunch of people that make the roll call of blessings, right? We pray that tomorrow it's good. You know, maybe if they're under five, they'll pray. I remember my brother used to pray for big burden cars, okay? I was like, oh, that's cool, right? And so I remember my son at seven years old, he was going through his normal list. Uh, He said amen. It was like a normal prayer night, but then he looks at me and he looks very concerned. He said, daddy. I was like, yeah. I had this thought. Yeah. What if God can't hear me? And he began to cry. I thought, whoa, this just got serious, right? And at first, when you hear that as a parent, you're like, I'm kind of panicking right now. Like, he's only seven. Like, what YouTube shows have you been watching? Where, 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 where? I'm like, I'm trying to think. I'm like, no, no, no. He's actually just beginning to process his kid prayers, right? His kid prayers are on the precipice of graduating into more adult prayers. Does that make sense? He's beginning to think through the ramifications. I'm supposed to be talking to the creator of the universe. I don't see him. I don't necessarily hear him audibly. So what if he doesn't hear me? And so instead of panicking, we began to just have a conversation. And it got to the point where he's like, oh, awesome. God can hear me? Yeah, he can hear you. Oh, okay, good. I just thought because I couldn't see him and now I understand. Okay, great. You see, by his question, it took his understanding of prayer that was almost ritual into something that was more of a relationship. Just like when, we had, when I had questions in high school and college, my son had questions at the age of seven. Now, having faith in Jesus Christ is as easy as for a child to understand, okay? We don't want to discount when a child gives her life to Christ. That's a real thing. In fact, Jesus commends childlike faith. He wants us to trust him because he's Jesus. He wants, us, he wants us to trust him just as when we were a little kid, we trust our parents when they're driving somewhere far away, right? We're like, yeah, they're gonna get us there, right? But Jesus doesn't want us to stay in a childlike fashion where we never grow. He wants us to grow and mature in our faith. 
And doubt, when it provides questions, is an opportunity for us to grow in maturity to him. Doubt, when given to God, grows one's faith, uh, and you have a choice when you have doubts. Are you going to lean in and ask God, or are you going to lean into yourself and either ignore it or begin to make up answers yourself? When you choose, when you have doubt, you're going to choose to drift, or you're going to dig in. So a positive doubt is examination. It's examination of questions that you have, examination of your heart, where you're at. Now, there is a negative doubt, and it's filled throughout Scripture. Uh, a negative doubt is not one of examination. It's one that produces disbelief. And we see this in James chapter 1, verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. Oh, isn't that awesome, by the way? We don't have a clue what's going on in life. Guess what? Talk to God. He wants to generously uh, meet with you. But let him ask in faith without, there it is, doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now, isn't that an interesting description of doubt? Doubt today, almost a virtue, like a place that we should be in. And James is saying, hey, you're, you're being unstable. James makes it very graphic what will happen if we allow doubt to dictate what we believe. In this case, we see a person that's praying, and James makes clear, continue to pray. Go to him. Trust the God you're going to, the only God. Because we're told elsewhere in Hebrews eleven six 6, that without faith you cannot please God. Now, is it a sin to have doubt? Well, no. You may have doubt just because you woke up with doubt that morning. It matters what you do with it. It matters what you give your ear to. God wants your doubts. He wants to talk to you about it. He wants you to lean into him about it. But instead, today people, many people are being driven by doubts, not to go to God, but to make God into something that they want to make God into. When we're driven by doubt, it allows the winds of culture to direct our ways. As James says, for the doubter is like the surging seas driven and tossed by the wind. So a person that's being tossed by the waves is in great danger. In fact, Paul tells the Ephesian church this in Ephesians 4.14. He says, they're tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. When you are tossed around by doubt, you will be open to human trickery and false doctrine outright, deconstruction or destruction of your faith. Negative doubt leads to wavering faith. Uh, negative doubt leads to more faith in oneself than God. Negative doubt is prideful because you're placing more faith into what you're thinking instead of the thoughts of God. I was having lunch a while back with someone who was doubting some of the key tenets of the faith. They had grown up in the church their whole life, uh, but they were just at a spot where they weren't even really wrestling against some of the thoughts that they were having. They were giving in to them, and they were listening to a, a diet of podcasts uh, that were all about uh, moving away from historical Christianity. By the way, uh, this is an epidemic uh, amongst uh, Christians in the church today. They are listening to voices online uh, in a way to where they are moving away from historic creeds that we've had since the earliest of the church. And they're being captivated with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Well, this person was 
so convinced at this point that the virgin birth, Jesus wasn't born by a virgin, and they, they didn't trust the Bible as being an errant or an authority, and they even began to question, was Jesus' death on the cross actually sufficient? And I, hearing this, you kind of panic as you realize this person is on the precipice, if not already, uh, into spiritual disaster. And so I asked him, I said, okay, if the Bible is not your authority, then what is? And there was just silence. And I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yes. If the Bible's not authority and you're trying to figure out all these different things in life, what you believe and don't believe, it sounds like your own mind has become the authority. Would you agree with that? And he sat there for a second and said, yes, I think you're right. My mind is my own authority. I appreciate his honesty. Most people would say, no, that's, oh, no, nonsense, no. But it is. Something is your authority. What is it? And for many of us, when we begin to doubt, we make our minds our own authority and we fall into our own self-deception. Negative doubt looks to oneself or something else and grows apart from Christ. Negative doubt will not lead to a strong faith, but of disbelief. You see, growing like Christ is our aim, but weak faith is not a virtue. The bottom line is this, when we have doubts, we must leverage them to build our faith, not dismantle it or destroy it. And in today's culture, it seems like to have doubts, uh, to stay in a place of doubt is a place of virtue. Uh, There is a war for our minds. Make no mistake. There is a war for your mind. Uh, It's easy to point your finger like, oh, I wish this this person could hear this. No, there is a battle for your mind. It is a $400 billion industry to mine the data of your online habits, of your everyday habits. People are like, you know back in the 80s, you'd see these movies where there was a tracking device. And it's like, ooh, he's got a tracking device. Wonder if you'll find it by the end of the movie. Here's the deal. We all have tracking devices, all right? They're called our phones, all right? And we know this, that these, the data from where we move, our movements uh, through our phones, what we browse, what you look at, uh, again, all of that is sold on an open market so that people know who you are, so they try to make your behaviors a bit different, so they can make money off your behavior, so they can change even your viewpoints on things, but the different news stories that you see, this isn't conspiracy, I won't talk about conspiracy, this is real, this is why you have to opt out and, uh, of your privacies, or you can, you can say, I don't want to go to this website, or the cookies, all that, whenever you opt in, that's what you're opting into. Okay, now that's, I'm not here to say throw your phones away or not go on the internet ever again. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying to go to Woodman's and buy all the tin foil that's in the tin foil line, uh, aisle. But what I am saying is this, know there's a battle for your mind. A recent study from last fall found that a majority of young people uh, receive their news from online influencers. I said this last week. Uh, a good majority of teenagers are informed through current events through memes, you know, the pictures, right, where they, where, they show, uh, where, they, where they show Michael Scott from The Office, and then they put a little, you know, piffy comment above him. People are learning the theology from those pictures more so than anything else today. Boy, and we thought MTV was the demon in the 80s, right? <laughs> but the thing is this, in January 2020, there was memes of an impending World War III, I believe, Iran had bombed some of our troops in Iraq. And so there was a impending, there's memes of impending World War III in a military draft. It frightened teenagers so bad, the New York Times had to write an article that said, hey, we're not going into a third world war. You can chill out a little bit. Except none of them heard it because who reads the New York Times? Because they're reading memes, all right? Put it simply, our society 
especially late millennials and Gen Z, are being discipled by our phones. I would even say, I'm going to correct that, we're all being discipled by these things, all right? Now, again, I'm not telling you to throw them away. We need to make sure that we steward technology, that we steward our conversations and relationships and what we listen to and what we take into our life. We need to steward that unto the Lord. Mark Matlock says this in his book, Faith for Exiles. Many young people turn to friends and algorithms, whereas a screen and online connectedness can make, shared one, can, uh, can make sharing one's faith or being open about Jesus easier. 64% of young adults are more hesitant in this connected age to bring Jesus up. Truths are going through the filter of online narratives that in turn shape our perception of the world, a godless world with godless values. And as a result, we see a very quick historical flip occurring. In fact, it was just this last week, uh, a poll came out, they believe by 2070, that Christianity will be a, a minority in the United States. Now, I'm not saying this to say, oh my goodness, oh, you know, let's, let's freak out. No, I'm saying, okay, let's get back on mission. All these projections are just projections, and all I know is that revivals break projections, amen? And so all I gotta say is I look at that, I'm like, all right, game on, or the word that Brandon says, bet, let's do it, all right? Let's go for this. Let's flip the equation. How do we flip the equation? By doing this. We steward every single one of our doubts. We steward every bit of our information unto the Lord. We realize, God, you are going to use us. We're not going to understand everything. We need to be submissive to you. But we live in a world that's being built on narrative. Narrative is not something that's built off truth, but rather a desired outcome. People want a desired outcome, and they will use by any means necessary to get that desired outcome of that desired narrative. And truth has become, as a result, my truth, instead of being the truth. And whenever it's my truth, it will lead to disaster. But this isn't anything new. Paul warned the Galatians church in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He said, I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so we're living in a very confusing era. We're living in a very confusing society, but it's, it is confusing back then too, which means this. The word of God can inform us today. It can inform us in our doubts right now. So when you're faced with doubts in life, the confusion of life, it's important to act in your doubts with humility, not pride. Humility is this, knowing that we're easily deceived. Our hearts are easily deceptive. Doubts come from a heart that doesn't fully see or understand. That's why they're doubts. And yet we live in a society where if you have doubts, it almost makes you an expert. It makes you almost have an omniscient mind. I'm having these doubts. Oh, you're really, oh man, you're an expert. No, we, they don't know. In fact, many people have left the faith. We'll talk about this uh, next week. Many people who left the faith, one person in particular, he had a podcast as a Christian, he wrote many books as a Christian, and he spoke on many stages as a Christian. When he began to have doubts in his faith, he, he talked about his doubts on the podcast, he began writing books about his doubts, and he, be, and he continued to speak on the stage about his doubts. Finally, his doubts lead to a full-fledged destruction of his faith, and when he was no longer a Christian, he still had the podcast, was still writing books, and still talking on stages, but now as a non-believer. How is that? Can you imagine if somebody was wrong with scientific, just come flat out wrong as an expert in, in, in any field of science or, or any field of engineering? You built a tall building and it collapsed. Like, well, next week I'm going to be an expert on stage. No, you wouldn't. But yet, this is where society is without. It's become a virtue. 
here's the deal is you will have doubts and the opportunity for that is to leverage that into digging deep into the things of God to grow in your faith, not to stay in your doubt, not to wallow in it, become a virtue to where you fall into disbelief. When we are in doubt, we need to navigate the doubt in humility, not pride. Doubt from pride will always lead to a fall. So what is doubt? It's to waver, it's to hesitate, it's literally to want to be in two different directions at the same time. And Jesus is saying, in your doubt, choose to stay. Choose to stay. Now, second, when does doubt occur? Well, doubt can occur at any moment, okay? And we're not to be fearful of that, okay? Uh, it, it, it could occur uh, for no reason at all. But let me give you three reasons why I have seen doubt come up in people's lives. The first one is this, when you can't answer a question or you don't like the answer to the question. People um, got mad at Jesus all the time with their questions or more specifically the answers to his questions. In fact, let me give you this example. Uh, Jesus had just uh, finished feeding the 5,000 people. It was more than that. That's just 5,000 men, all right? So there were women and children there as well. So he fed over 5,000. We'll just say 10,000 if we're going to double it. Five loaves of bread and two fish. And through his miracle, he fed the multitude. Now, for the doubters, they're going to be like, okay, I'm in, right? You just fed all these people. I'm in. I believe them, right? And they were there was leftovers it was amazing in fact the next day when jesus departed the people were like hey the guy that just fed us everything you know the guy that says he's a messiah where'd he go oh he went to capernaum quick get in the boats let's follow him they went down seven miles um, of water travel to find jesus and when jesus saw this multitude of crowds coming he knew exactly he's like they want more bread so jesus is like all right it's showtime it's showtime are you only seeking me out because i fed you yesterday they're like, uh, hey, uh, we want that bread. And Jesus is like, all right, showtime, here comes an object lesson. He said, all right, you want more bread? I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. Huh? What? John 6, 53. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. And I can imagine his disciples like, Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you talking about? The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus, you're just scaring them. All right? Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And just as the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate. They died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And the disciples are like, okay, we've heard his parables before. This is the weirdest one, okay. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, and many disciples deserted Jesus. Therefore, when many of the disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? You know, people were excited because he was giving them a good experience. He was giving them a full belly. He was giving them the abundance in this life. But what kept them from placing their full faith in the Messiah, these were the questions that they had for him. Okay, we like what you're giving us. We like the experience of the Christian life. But there's just some questions I have before we become fully devoted. Mm -mm. I think that sounds like today, right? Oh, we like the music. Oh, we like the blessings of Jesus. But I'm reading some scripture here, and I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I can become fully devoted. Guess what? If you've ever had that thought, you've ever had those doubts or those questions, so do these disciples right here. 
And Jesus knew these Jewish listeners, there was a Jewish audience between Capernaum and Israel, uh, they were having doubts. And if they had humility, they would lean in to say, okay, what does he really mean by this? But instead, the crowds had doubts about what Jesus was. They liked the blessings. But they wanted to ask questions that somehow justify just living by being the recipient of the blessing but not following. Did you get that? We like to read scripture sometimes because we like the blessing of Jesus, but we want to figure out some loopholes to keep on living the way that we're living. If you want full blessing, man, you got to start living in obedience. Now, I'm not saying if you're living in obedience today, you're going to get the BMW you've always wanted. What I'm saying right now is sometimes life is really crummy because we aren't following Jesus in obedience. You see what I'm saying? Like, you aren't going to find the full spiritual joy of following Christ if you're not following Christ. Do you get what I'm saying? It's not health and wealth what people are talking about. We don't, try to, we don't follow Jesus to get something he's going to give us. We follow Jesus because we get Jesus. But they like the blessing. So Jesus had an opportunity to soften his answer. <laughs> but they, he didn't. He gave them pure truth in the form of this parable. You're going to follow Jesus? You're going to follow me? you got to drink my blood, and you got to eat my body. And the disciples are like, oh, would you stop? All right? This is not going to, this was modern day, like, this is not going to look good on YouTube. The bloggers are going to go nuts about this one. The New York Times, are you kidding? Stop it, Jesus. He was using himself as a picture of what actually will bring out salvation. You see, the Jewish people, blood was repulsive. Uh, it was, uh, it, to drink it was unthinkable. Was Jesus actually saying drink blood like a vampire? No. He was using himself as a picture of what actually were to bring about salvation, that we need to digest his message of his gospel spiritually. And Jesus was using blood as a picture of what he was going to do. He was going to go, be nailed on the cross, shed his blood for you and I for every single sin we'd ever commit. And the Jewish listeners, they would have been very familiar with sacrifice, with temple sacrifice. Just as the Jewish people brought their livestock to be sacrificed in the temple, Jesus was going to be sacrificed. So what Jesus was saying is, you seek out food that you're going to be hungry the next day. Let me give you something that's going to be eternally satisfying. But yet, they missed it. And their doubt, their questions turn to disbelief. From that moment, many disciples turned their back and no longer accompanied him. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom will we go? I mean, notice the result of Jesus's, the result of the question, right? The answer he gave them the multitudes of people turned their backs and said, we out, we're gone. What you just said is beyond the line of crazy, all right? We're out of here. And so we see here many people no longer accompanied him, and they went back, they went back to their former way of life. They returned to their old way of life, their old way of thinking. And so the 12 disciples are like, oh, we just did an opinion poll. Look what happened, Jesus. They're all gone. And Jesus looks at them saying, where are you going to go to? Peter, I'm sure, did a little bit of a cost-benefit analysis. He's like, okay, that was weird. And he gave the PC answer, but to whom shall we go? You're the one that provides eternal life. There's going to be a cost. Okay. 
when everyone was falling, they realized you may not have provided the popular answer, but you're still the way, the truth, and the life. And this is so important with our doubts. The answer to our doubts is not always going to be popular. In fact, most of the time, it's not going to be. But thanks be to God, truth is not determined by majority vote. Thanks be to God that truth is always the remedy to our doubts. And today, too many people are group thinking their way into heresy, or they're group thinking their way into rebellion, or they're group thinking their way into unbelief. They're group thinking their way into how they view morality of what their sexuality or their theology, you name it. Truth is not a popularity contest. It never will be, so don't ever try to do it that way. So, we will notice that you will be faced with doubt when you have questions or you don't like the answer to the questions. But just because you don't like the answer to the questions doesn't mean it's not true, all right? Second reason why you'll face doubts is when you face situations that seem unfair. When you face situations to things that seem unfair. Doubts can occur when life doesn't make sense. It seems like, God, why did you do that? Or why did you allow that? Uh, we see this specifically in a uh, passage in the book of Luke with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus. He prepared the way for the coming Messiah. There is no doubt in any theologian's mind that John the Baptist believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that John the Baptist was a believer. When, in fact, when he saw Jesus walking towards him in the desert, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was a full-fledged follower of Christ. He even said that he must decrease so that Christ may increase. But that doesn't mean that John the Baptist, being a human being, didn't fall in hard times. He did. John the Baptist, he was known to be very bold. And at one time, he confronted Herod the Tetrarch. He was from the family of Herod the Great. And Herod, the one he confronted, they all named themselves Herod. <laughs> uh, Herod, the one he confronted, stole and married his half-brother's wife, Herodias. Isn't that funny, Her Herodias? They just like that name. Okay, so anyway, what makes this even more of a bizarre story is that Herodias was Herod's brother's niece, so his brother married his niece, all right? So I, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, Jerry, Jerry, or Mari Povich, you are the father, right? I don't know. This is just messed up. And so John the Baptist confronted him, and he says, hey, you need to know what you did was wrong, but it wasn't just wrong, it was sick, like, even people that aren't Christ followers know your peers. They're like whispering, this is gross. It's wrong. And as a result, Herod threw him into prison. John the Baptist didn't just go to prison. He went to an awful prison in the middle of the desert by the Dead Sea. Very few people uh, visited him. He was alone and by himself. And he was tired. He was feeling sick. And at some point, he wondered, why, God? Why? I prepared your You're going to make me end my days like this? They began to have doubts, and we see this in Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Then John's disciples told him about all these things, and so John summoned two of his disciples, and he said to them, to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come, or should I expect someone else? This is what's happening. John the Baptist's disciples came to him in prison. He's like, hey, I, I want you to go to Jesus, and I want you to ask him. And they're seeing him. He's, he's probably lost tons of weight. His beard is probably, he's all unkempt. And he's like, I need you to ask Jesus. Are you the one, or should I look for somebody else? Again, there's no doubt that John had faith in Jesus. But doubts were creeping into the peripheral. And what John did here 
when I, I remember when I, was, when I first read this, and each time when I read it, I'm like, man, John the Baptist is saying that? Sometimes when you have questions, you're like, I'm just not going to, I'm just going to pretend he didn't say that, right? Right? No, he said it. What do you mean by that? John just wanted assurance of what he already knew. He wanted assurance. So when some of his disciples visited him and saw him dejected, John said to his disciples, I have a request for you. Yes? Go and ask Jesus. Please ask him again if he's the one. Why is he doing this? John, it's easy to say, how dare you, John, even ask that question. But this is what he did. He could easily just ask that question in his heart and began to form some kind of heretical, bad theology in his mind. But what he really wanted was this. Can I just hear the truth of Jesus again? He took his doubt and didn't take it everywhere else. He took it right back to Jesus. Do you see what happened here? He took it right back to Jesus, right back to the source. And this is where most of us get it wrong. When we have doubts, we take it everywhere else but Jesus. We need to take the page out of John the Baptist's doubt. When he had a doubt, he said, hey, I need you to relay this to the source. Luke chapter 7, verse 20. When the man reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? And at that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and granted sight to the blind people. And he replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news, and the blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And when they went back to John and told him this, you know what I believe that John believed? He's like, yes, I just Needed to hear the truth in this hard situation. Oh, can we learn from that, church, right? Can we learn from that? Jesus told him what was happening, what was going on to remind John of what he had already seen himself. You see, doubts try to rob you of what you believe and what you know. Doubts try to rob you of what you've seen and experienced. We have faulty memories and doubts try to leverage that. But when we take the doubt back to God, not only does he remind us what he already did and we saw, he tells us what he's doing right now. Now, I remember there was a time years ago when I was going through, uh, uh, about a half decade or six, seven years ago, I was going through some hard stuff in ministry. And by the way, if you're not going through some hard things in ministry where ministry can be challenging, that, you, need to, you need to crank it up a little bit, all right? All right, because listen, it, it, the, enemy, the enemy doesn't kick a dead horse, right? If you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on in life? You're right over the target, just lean into God, all right? But I remember there was a time a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago, some times ago, probably a decade ago, actually, now I think about this, uh, that I began to just question the call of the Lord. It was hard. Like, God, why are you doing this? God, please, just tell me. Like, uh, is this the call or is there something else, right? I was having a John the Baptist moment. And so I was praying, I was reading scripture, and then I woke up in the middle of the night, and I tapped my wife on the shoulder, and I said, Allison, yeah, I'm struggling with these things I know that are doubts and aren't true, Will you speak truth to me? Oh, yeah, I know all these truths already. That don't, doesn't matter. I need to hear it. I need to hear the truth. And Allison began just to speak God's truth, speak uh, just what God was speaking to her, speaking most importantly the scripture of God, uh, the holy scriptures. And, and, and it gave perspective to my mind. Something I, it, I'm like, oh, wow, I learned something new. It's like, oh, I remember that verse. Yes, I believe that God's doing this now. 
I need you to hear it. Because doubts are loud and they will outshout the truth in some moments, but the truth will always win out. Maybe you're going through hard times. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a loss. You can fill in that blank. What I want you to know now is you need to run to the truth. You need to say, God, help me in my unbelief. God, help me desire you and your word right now because I don't even want to desire it right now. I just feel so dejected or so paralyzed. We need to hear the truth. When it's when we don't want the truth and we're most confused, that's usually when we stay away, but that's when we need it the most. face situations that seem unfair you will have doubt third what reason why you might face doubt is as you grow as you grow your faith didn't grow as you physically grow your faith didn't grow uh, to put it this way i heard this years ago probably in bible college but someone said hey some of you your faith never left the nursery i'm like Ooh, oh boy christians are meant to grow in their faith we aren't meant to stay the same but for many growth stops with veggie tales. They stop in youth group. They stop in your young adult group. And then we become a peer group that leads Bible studies where the blind lead the blind. God doesn't want that. He wants us to be fully devoted followers of Christ. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. We, the church will not thrive. That stat where they said the minority of people will be Christians by 2070, that will happen if we continue to run on fumes in our faith. We're meant to grow. We're meant to grow. 1 Timothy 4.15 says, Practice these things, be comforted to them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay, pay close attention to your life, your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save yourself and your hearers. Faith is not meant to be stagnant. It's to be a journey towards Jesus. We'll talk more about the specifics in the weeks to come of when we face doubt. Again, these weren't to be all exhaustive, but just kind of tee the conversation off. But let's kind of land it here today, okay? Third thing is, what should you do when you face doubt? We're going to spitfire some of these things because, again, we're just teeing up the conversation. What should you do when you face doubt? is don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. There's no need to be ashamed. Every single person doesn't know everything, so you're going to have questions, and sometimes you don't like the answers to those questions, and sometimes you're, we're just confused. To doubt is to be human, but the key is to give them to God, because when we give them to God, the supernatural can break out. If you're facing somebody who's facing doubt, don't shame them. Jude 22 says this, to have mercy on those who doubt. The church should be a safe place to where people can meet God in their doubts. So let me just give you some spitfire things here this morning. What, what, what you should do when you face doubt. Number one is be humble with your doubt. That's really huge, okay? Don't become experts of, of your answers of your doubt or why you're doubting. Be humble with them. Dig. Know your limitations and don't be lazy with them. Number two, become a student of God's word, Okay? Uh, you may read God's word and have questions and doubts because you're reading God's word, but that's to become a student and learn what God's word has to say about your life, right? That's him forming you and growing you. But sometimes we have doubts because we're not in God's word. And we begin to trust culture that's diametrically opposed to the word of God. So know and trust what God has to say and ask God for the faith uh, to be obedient to what he says. Number three, be active in ministry. Be active in ministry. The reason why I say this is that we need to contend together in the faith. 
I love what Billy Graham says. He says, our faith becomes stronger as we express it. A growing faith is sharing it. Let me say that again. Our faith becomes stronger as we express it. A growing faith is sharing faith. We need to be active in ministry. Number four is we need to find community, specifically here at Kenosha City Church. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. A faith is not meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done together to where it's not some kind of club. It's not some kind of, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. We're just, uh, you, know, you know, we're just at this club of just friendship, you know, country club. No, no, no. It's we're sharpening each other to become more like Christ. The, the, the nucleus of our friendship, the nucleus of why we gather is Jesus and becoming more like him. Not like more like each other and our, our failings. We're imperfect people that don't have anything to offer each other in ourselves, but because we have Christ, we can, be, we can become more like Christ. And number five, when you're facing doubt, know what and why you believe. That's, that was so foundational for me when I had questions. In fact, you can jump right into the deep end today with pizza and apologetics. Right at 12.45, I want to see you all there, all right? It's in the West Room. I'd love to just pack that place out. Joshua G. has come all the way from South Carolina, um, North Greenville University. And so uh, we're just really excited to have him here today to help you understand what, why you believe what you believe and know how to express it. It's going to be a crash course. And there's pizza, all right? What should you do when someone's facing doubt? What should you not do uh, when someone is facing doubt? Is don't ignore them and don't shame them, but rather pray for them and encourage them. You see, the gospel this morning needs our doubts. It needs our doubts. And this morning, wherever you're at, put them at the foot of the cross. Say, Jesus, help me in my weakness. Help me in my doubts. And you know what? The Lord, he stands here today to help strengthen your faith. It is not a virtue to dismantle and destroy your faith. The virtue is found in Christ who wants to fortify and grow your faith. And so for some of you today, you need to lay those doubts. You're a follower of Christ. You need to lay those doubts again before the cross. Say, God, grow me in this area. For some of you, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And we're going to give you that opportunity right now. So let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit of God to meet with us. And let's just do business with him. What are we going to give him? So, Father, I pray right now for those that need to give you their lives. They've never placed their faith and trust in you. And the good news is, is that you're amazing. You are the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You're perfect in every way. Yet without sin, you took our sin. You're the perfect sacrifice that we may be forgiven. Thank you for dying on the cross, saving us from our sins. Thank you for raising from the dead three days later. By the power of, of God, that stone was rolled away and you walked out of that tomb. That tomb is empty. You defeated death, hell, the grave. Just as we continue to pray, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you were to stand before Jesus, would you know for certain you'd go to heaven? Have you asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, specifically the Savior of your sins? If you've not personally asked Jesus to be your Savior, today's your day. Today's your day. The Bible says that all those who cry on the name of the Lord will be saved. You may have questions, come to him. Uh, you may have doubts, come to him. You may have insecurities, come to him. You may have brokenness, come to him. 
Your life may be a mess. Come to him because it's not about you. It's about what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. So just right now, just tell Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Save me. Forgive me. I place my full faith and trust in you alone right now and what you did on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. Step into my life right now. With every head's bowed and eyes closed, if that's you this morning, if you're like, yes to Jesus, I, I'm saying yes to Jesus, I'm asking him to step into my life, I'm asking him to be my savior, I'm asking him to forgiveness, for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead, I believe that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. If that's you right now, you're giving your life to Jesus, with no one looking around, will you just slip up your hand? Yeah, that's me. That's me, awesome, awesome. Just slip up your hand up high, awesome, awesome. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for those that are saying yes to you today. God, I just pray for everybody in this room now that whenever they have questions or doubts where they've not been obedient to you or maybe they've given up on, on digging deep and they're drifting, God, I pray that you bring, you'd, you'd bring them back to the foot of the cross. Bring the remembrance, God, of what maybe they've drifted away and given up on. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.